Before we get started today, I'd like to talk about our new Buy Me A Coffee memberships. Now you can offer one to five coffees to our staff members every month, and that would get you exclusive perks like special newsletters, behind the scenes content, the ability to ask questions directly to us, as well as a special shout out here on our podcast. And today I want to thank our first members on Buy Me A Coffee, Peter Suffering, Anderson Da Silva, Kat Kramer, and Fra. Thank you all very, very much. And you too should join them and support independent journalism. Head to Buy Me A Coffee and subscribe. And starting next week, you can hear your name on Explaining Brazil. If you cannot support us on a monthly basis, you can still tip us a coffee to give us the energy we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. Head to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian report to find out more. The word got used to sing Venezuela as an economic horror show. Food riots and looting. This is now the only daily diet Venezuelans can count on. Violent protesters stormed the National Assembly Sunday, even punching some lawmakers. Chaos in Caracas. A stolen police helicopter fires on Venezuela's Supreme Court. The clashes in Caracas between protesters and police are looking more like all-out war. The country lost 80% of its GDP during the Nicolas Maduro era, and monthly inflation reached almost 200% at one point in 2019. The Venezuelan crisis was marked by corruption, hyperinflation, one of the world's highest homicide rates, food and medicine shortages, as well as the largest exodus in recent history of Latin America, according to the UN Refugee Agency. A couple of years ago, the International Monetary Fund said it would take a major course of economic shock therapy for Venezuela to scramble its way out of the hole it had dug for itself. And apparently, that's what President Nicolás Maduro is now trying to do. This week I'll be talking with our Buenos Aires correspondent Ignacio Portes to find out what exactly is happening in Venezuela. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report, this is Explaining Brazil. Investment bank Credit Suisse said in a report published last week that the Venezuelan economy should grow by 20% this year and 8% in 2023. The bank was clear to point out that these were not typos, and if the report is accurate, it would mean that Venezuela is among the strongest growth prints globally for these years. Ignacio Portes, you are our Latin America correspondent and writer of our Latin America weekly newsletter, which is published every Wednesday, just like our podcast, by the way. Welcome back to the show, Ignacio. Hi, Gustavo. Thanks for having me. So, Ignacio, uh, I need your help to understand what is going on in Venezuela right now. And you'll be forgiven for thinking that estimates of 20% growth for the country were some kind of late April Fool's joke, right? Right, because we've become used to seeing the exact opposite numbers from Venezuela in the last few years, really since the start, since the start of the Nicolás Maduro era, 
which began after the last re-election of Hugo Chavez and his death in 2013. Since then, the country lost around 75-80% of GDP, uh, depending on the estimates, which are not easy to to find because the the numbers are uh, the official numbers are often published late or with problems. But uh, in any case, it was almost an unprecedented figure worldwide for countries that aren't at civil war or at some kind of massive conflict. And now, uh, suddenly, the two-year the two-digit negative GDP readings have turned into two-digit positive GDP readings. And for those not paying attention, this is, this is shocking. This is hard to understand, right? And tell us a bit more about the years of Chavez and like how has Venezuela dug itself this economic hole and how it is trying to claw its way back up? Right, yeah. It's hard to understand anything about Venezuela without looking into the into how chavismo came into the country and radically transformed it in, since the 90s Venezuela was a rarely stable country in Latin America when when the rest of the continent was dominated by dictatorships in the 70s because it had uh, the benefit of high oil prices during those years. Uh, it was uh, supported by the U.S., it didn't have the political instability and the armed conflicts that you saw in other places, but when those boom times came to, came to an end, with the end of the old boom in the 80s, the country found itself in a, with high debts and getting into the typical IMF austerity cycles in which the IMF demands budget stabilization, the population is unhappy, protests, politicians become unpopular. And um, this is how uh, Chavez found a way to, to become uh, the alternative to Venezuela's political system. Uh, there was a famous protest in 1989, the Caracaso, which the government brutally repressed with hundreds, maybe thousands of deaths uh, in the most poor neighborhoods in Venezuela. Durante 24 horas interminables, desde la tarde del martes 28 hasta la noche del miércoles primero, la ciudad se llenó del eco de los disparos, de fusiles y ametralladoras, hasta que el ejército impuso orden entre la gente. And uh, eventually Chavez emerged as a rebellious leader in those uh, Venezuelan armed forces and attempted a coup in 1992. Uh, he went to jail, but eventually he became so popular with the poor people, which he started to include in his uh, political uh, process uh, for maybe the first time in the country's history, that he was eventually democratically elected in 1998. And he took over the country and started these radical transformations that, uh, that Venezuela saw for one, two decades uh, until it really got into an economic crisis. And that when Chavez got elected into power and steering the country radically to the left, that's when political polarization and bad macroeconomic policies started taking shape in the country, right? Yes, uh, yes. Chavez uh, immediately faced opposition from both uh, the, the historical elites of the country and from the United States, uh, which Chavez was targeting both groups with his reforms. And they conspired to oust him in a coup in 2002 and then with a massive oil lockout protest in 2003. And so, yes, immediately the country became very polarized economically in the first few years after Chavez took office. And, uh, and that political and economic conflict also caused uh, the start of capital flights and the devaluation of the Bolivar. 
Venezuela's currency, by the way. Chavez started looking for answers to these um, capital flight problems that he was facing, and he imposed something that would turn out to be very important in the future, which was the currency controls and the fixed exchange rate for the Bolivar. He pegged the value of the local currency to, uh, to a certain rate, exchange rate with the dollar. Uh, and for a while, it seemed to be working great, right? Because uh, he stabilized the country. He won against the first against the coup and then against the, the oil boycotts that he was facing in his country. And um, the, the oil managers were deposed. He put his own people in, the, in charge of the state-owned oil company. And he, oil prices were rising too. So he had a lot of room for distribution, distribution policies. The key moment in his presidency came in 2004 when oil prices surged. Venezuela's petroleum-dependent economy started booming, and Chavez went on to spend billions from the profits on social welfare programs for the poor. He subsidized food, improved the educational system, built an enviable healthcare system, and reduced poverty by more than half. And uh, he became massively popular with, with the poor of Venezuela and, and massively unpopular with the elites and middle classes. Uh, so the country was, yes, as you say, very polarized, but uh, also very successful economically. Very, it, people were very prosperous, but eventually oil prices starting again to come back. This is the typical cycle in this oil-dependent countries. Uh, and oil, the, the oil distributionism policies were replaced with money printing and public spending. And uh, again, uh, he had similar problems to, to the old elites that he really didn't have good answers for, for the downturn in oil. Yeah, and the problem of bringing a petro state that is a state that depends massively on the export of gas is that when prices go down, your country is left exposed, especially in a place where political institutions are weak and largely unaccountable and where corruption is widespread. So by, by what you're saying, we can say that the economic problems precede Maduro. It's not they didn't start with Nicolas Maduro in power. Yes, definitely. The worst years came under Maduro, but they, they stem from policies that started during the, the Chavez era. Uh, as I was saying, this fixed exchange rate is very important. When Chavez started spending uh, much more strongly to replace the missing oil income, uh, the, the, the high inflation that the country had became incompatible with the currency peg because basically the, the, the Bolivar was formally uh, being, had the same value uh, as years uh, as years ago, but uh, in practice, it was losing uh, value due to, the, due to the inflationary rise and the depreciation of the currency against Venezuelan goods. So the central bank was artificially supporting the value of the Bolivar, selling its international reserves, its dollar reserves, its gold reserves, uh, to keep that artificial reality in place. But eventually, the central bank ran out of hard money, and Venezuela could not import anything anymore. Uh, so even if you had the believers to do it, right, if you had a good income that kept up with inflation, uh, you couldn't convert it to dollars or to gold or to euros to buy any foreign products because the central bank simply didn't have any dollars or any gold left to, to, to make those international transactions. So in a country like Venezuela that produced very little locally because it was always very dependent on oil, as you say, and it really needed... Uh, foreign commerce to afford to to afford the basics to buy food, uh, spare parts, machinery, everything that the country didn't produce. This was a, a massive problem, and uh, it, it was even made worse by by the artificially cheap exchange rates that that Chavez generated 
in 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 those boom years uh, with the peg of the currency right because it was more expensive to produce at home it was very cheap to import and so everyone became used to importing and suddenly the central bank ran out of reserves and there was nothing to import anymore so venezuela was faced with a brutal crisis because of this uh, supermarket shelves were empty and and i don't mean empty in the in the sense that we've we've, we've seen in the last few years in some other western countries uh, like for a day or two, you don't have paid toilet paper or this or that product runs out. I mean, really empty, no medicines, almost no food, a couple of basic, the most basic foods to just barely eat, and sometimes not even that. And uh, and uh, it was a, it was really an unprecedentedly bad crisis for the country and for the continent. Really, it's, it's hard to find any anything comparable to that. And usually, in countries where the economy is in such a bad shape, then there's the sort of underground economy that begins to flourish. Was that the case in Venezuela too? Yes, when, when you could not do the transactions formally uh, because the central bank had no currency, uh, people started to build black markets. Uh, even, even the Venezuelan state, uh, I, mean, I mean, before his, before his death, Chavez started to give a lot of power to the military and to the state regulators uh, to make sure he had loyal people in all the places in the state to not uh, to avoid a, the repetition of a coup in 2002. And these same groups that Chavez put in place in the state uh, started to build this black market themselves, right? Uh, first, they decided who got access to the few import quotas that the central bank still made available. And then they even controlled the borders to the flow of goods through the borders and who was allowed to operate in parallel and more realistic exchange rates in underground exchange houses and so on. So even with the with the tacit uh, acceptance of elements of the state, this black market started to be built, and normal people, uh, like with even like office officials, combined with with everyday citizens to to work in this parallel black market to to just be able to do the most basic transactions and buy food or some basic products somehow. Uh, it was a really perverse economic structure in which uh, they are they were making making money out of the misery of, of people who could not find any other way to commerce because the normal avenues were broken. So they had to go to the borders, to the illegal places that, they, that the military itself controlled to, to survive. And when did this change? When did Maduro finally reform that system? Well, it's hard to find that exact point in time in which the Venezuelan leadership changed its mind. They, it was a transition uh, they, because many were benefiting, as I said, but at some point they started to see that it was unsustainable. And um, what, what I like to do is to compare it with similar processes that other socialist governments underwent in history when the, a ruling bureaucratic caste that is in full control of the state uh, sees that the economy is doing poorly uh, and, 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 and that they might even undermine their own uh, control. They start uh, considering making market reforms or, or changing the way they run things uh, as long as they can retain a good position, right? Or, or even uh, if they found ways to improve their position even better. Uh, it's what happened in the USSR, uh, maybe in, in a very chaotic fashion in the USSR in the 90s when the, they own, the, the state's own bureaucracy started privatizing its assets and creating that shock privatization of the 90s. It happened in China under Deng Xiaoping uh, after the economic failures of Mao. And you can even see it happening today in Cuba, which is a very close ally of Venezuela. You can see the government there eliminating its multiple exchange rate system last year 
uh, as it was running into a massive foreign sector crisis when it uh, when the tourism ended due to the COVID crisis. So uh, Venezuela and C Cuba's political leaders are very closely in contact, and I think they their minds started changing uh, parallelly, right? At the same time, they started seeing that, okay, maybe we need to make some pragmatic change and we need to do some reforms along the lines that other socialist countries did. And they brought advisors from China to talk about these issues And they started to to do uh, those kind of reforms that Deng did in China in Venezuela. Like the difference really is that uh, Maduro was never an internal dissident in in Venezuela. He was he was always part of the regime. He was never exiled or persecuted the way Deng was in China. But even if he's not exactly comparable to Deng or some other figures who uh, created these kind of changes, he did do some uh, reforms that are inspired in them and that. The, when in that the historical process are 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 similar right in in during the Donald Trump era with the sanctions that that Trump imposed on Venezuela that even isolated it even more uh he he finally made that turn and maybe that gave him the perfect excuse to make the the changes to make the reforms because he found like the foreign enemy to justify uh, change August 2018 that's the key moment in which he Uh, introduces a basket of reforms to, in his words, adapt to the economic war waged against Venezuela. And this is where uh, he starts turning the course of the country. And what did these reforms that Maduro announced consist of? Yeah, well, the most notable one was the unification of this multiple exchange rate regime, which was possibly the main source of economic inefficiency. Basically, they devalued the, the official rate of the, of the Bolivar uh, And uh, to bring it closer to the value that it had on black markets, Venezuela went from from having this chaotic black market system to basically uh, having one system again. So basically what you're saying is that there was tacit legalization of Venezuela's dollar-based black market economy. Yeah, in a way that's what happened. Uh, everyone started operating... Uh, in in the like, if if you were already operating in the dollar-based black markets, you had a head start in the new system, which made it legal, right? Uh, the government went from fighting those people who operated in black markets to then tolerating them, and then eventually legalizing them and accepting them as a as a new and central part of the new economy. And this is why the country is seeing a sort of economic resurge today. Yes, it it has helped normalize foreign commerce, certainly. Uh, which was uh, a big obstacle to normality, coupled with U.S. sanctions and other factors. But uh, really, there's two factors that that change. On the one hand, uh, oil became uh, improved; the prices of oil improved a lot, so that helps Venezuela. But without the reforms, Venezuela wouldn't have been able to sell more oil abroad uh, because uh, the output of oil was dropping dramatically during the the Maduro crisis years. Uh, Um, and now, uh, with access again to foreign inputs and to machinery, and with a normalized foreign sector, it is possible to the for the Venezuelan uh, oil economy to respond to the increased demand from abroad and get uh, more dollars to 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 improve uh, its economic output. But you wrote for the Brazilian report that this recovery in Venezuela has been quite unequal, right? I mean. Which sectors have benefited the most from this rally and which are still lagging behind? 
Well, the, the two sectors that obviously improved are the oil sector and the foreign commerce sector. If you dealt with importing food, uh, creating local restaurants for people for people with dollars, local services for services for people with dollars, barber shops, whatever it is that sells to someone that has dollars somehow in the Venezuelan economy, then you're doing good. Uh, but if you haven't really uh, found a way to insert yourself in this new dollarized economy or in the oil sector, uh, you're still struggling and maybe even struggling harder uh, because local production is still hard because uh, the, the Bolivar part of the economy is really still destroyed. And, uh, and uh, if, if, you, if you have uh, plugged yourself into the new dollarized economy, maybe you're, you're, you're growing, you're doing much better, but the, the inequality uh, has paradoxically expanded a lot uh, from maybe it's even it's maybe even bigger today than it was in the when Chavez started his 21st century socialist reforms. How is the political situation in the country? Because in the past few years we had uh, attempted coups against Nicolas Maduro. Uh, the opposition at one point controlled the National Assembly, which is the lower house of Venezuela. And its leader at the time, a lawmaker called Juan Guaidó, uh, proclaimed himself the legitimate president of Venezuela. He was recognized by over 50 countries in the world, including the US, Brazil, Chile, and other South American neighbors. Uh, but the opposition has boycotted multiple elections in this past few uh, political cycles, and it has lost control over the assembly. So is Maduro's grip on power safe at this moment? Uh, does Juan Guaido still claim to be the rightful president of Venezuela? I mean, where do we stand in the balance of power between government and opposition? Right. Well, that's another massive issue in Venezuela. Uh, Guaido basically rose to power when uh, Chav uh, Maduro sorry when Maduro um, in the middle of this catastrophic economic crisis that the country was seeing started um, basically banning the opposition from any kind of political participation making it impossible for them to run in elections uh, Maduro lost a midterm uh, in in the middle of the crisis and the and when the, the presidential elections were coming a couple of years later he realized that he was going to lose and so basically he banned uh, the main figures of the opposition uh, at the time and uh, the only source of power of legitimate power at least in the eyes of the opposition and in the eyes of many 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 other countries was the assembly that legitimately had won the midterm elections previously, right? So when after Maduro's landslide win in the elections against no one else uh, in 2019, I think it was, uh, the opposition started saying, okay, this is not a legitimate government. Uh, the legitimate government, according to the Venezuelan constitution, if, the, if there's no really legitimate president elected, has to be has to come from the assembly. So the, the assembly elected Juan Guaido, and Guaido became uh, a, like a second president of Venezuela that was recognized internationally by the U.S., by all of most of Latin America, but not internally by Venezuela. Guaido kept control of foreign assets of Venezuela, of Venezuela's um, assets abroad, uh, but really couldn't do a lot at home. But with the economic crisis at, uh, at home, Maduro was struggling to to keep Guaido in check, but now 
with the improved economic situation, somewhat improved economic situation, Maduro is kind of really holding to a stronger grip on power. And he managed to run a new election, uh, like a midterm election uh, recently, in which a lot more of the opposition participated, though not all of it. Some kept boycotting the, the new elections because they still saw it as unfair. And Maduro had a relatively good election in those in the, that last last time around so he's kind of starting to recover a little bit of the legitimacy the democratic legitimacy he had lost during the crisis uh, he held very strongly to power because he kept control a very tight control of the military which is the really the big deciding factor in venezuelan politics and uh, and uh, now it's going to be very hard for the opposition to oust him if the economic if the economy is recovering and uh, and uh, and he's starting to organize a bit more legitimate elections in which he has more chances to win. Uh, it's going to be a much more upside, uh, uphill situation for the opposition if they couldn't uh, get back to power during the crisis times. It's going to be maybe much harder for them now. And finally, we uh, had talked about it briefly at the beginning of this episode about the fact that uh, the socioeconomic collapse of Venezuela pushed millions of people to seek better lives in other countries, mainly Colombia, but also Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Um, what is the situation of these millions of people who left the country during the crisis? We have seen some headlines about some of them starting to come back, but you have to realize that the proportion is, is, still, uh, is still very far from the, the amount of, that left, right? It's Five, six, seven million people left. Uh, the exact figures are hard to to get, but a few might be returning. But the the damage to the economy has been so big that they are returning. The ones who are returning return to a country that is uh, destroyed. It's really in ashes. Has to to build be built back again from almost from scratch. So some of them have come back, but and because they they found problems elsewhere. There's other crises, smaller crises in the places they went to, but uh, it's still hard for them to come back, especially because the political repression continues. Uh, Venezuela continues to punish dissidents. Some of them are kidnapped, are uh, uh, sequestered in, in clandestine concentration camps, or are put under the, the, the control of the military or, or the Venezuelan intelligence services and don't people don't know where they are for days for weeks for months so it's not a if, if if you are seen as a dissident which many of the people who left the country are you're not uh like uh, dying to come back uh and knowing that the situation will be great because the economy is recovering a little bit or or even if it's recovering strongly like uh, at, at the rates of growth that we're seeing uh, because uh, you're still going to face a complicated situation. It's going to be hard. Maybe you, you're the home, the assets you owned are now con uh, have been occupied by other people. Uh, the job you had, you won't find it very easily because the company maybe went out of the country. It's it's hard to reinsert back in such a society. It's uh, it's going to be a long reconstruction process for Venezuela, and uh, I'm not sure that many of the people who left the country are going to come back. Uh, in this situation, even if some slowly do, because there are some economic opportunities now. Ignacio, thank you very much. Thank you, Gustavo. And if you like Explaining Brazil, please drop us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help more people find out about this show. 
or even better, you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a 7-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the site for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro, thanks for listening, see you next week.